I'm so delighted to be here at WES. I feel as if I'm an honorary WES person. I'd like to give a special greeting to my friend Janine Kogan, my coach, who helped support me as my book was published, and also to my good friend Carol Clayton, the world's greatest portrait photographer, who encouraged me to approach Wes, and to Robin Carnes and Nancy Montagna, and to Lindsay Luck, with whom I studied the science of happiness and yoga nidra. So I feel as if I'm, I'm almost one of you. I'm going to talk today about adoption from the adopted person's perspective. I'm going to tell my story and tell the truth gently and compassionately, how searching and reuniting with my original families has helped build courage and acceptance. I didn't set out to write a memoir. I'm a playwright, a dramatist. And I've written 17 plays. Most of them have been produced in Washington and some of them beyond. But I'm also an adopted person, blessed, if you will, with a powerful homing instinct. No man or woman has ever had a sex instinct or an instinct to procreate stronger than my homing instinct to find my people. People think of adoptees as children, but we grow up. <laughs> and adoption is an existential experience that colors our whole lives. Of course, adopted people represent the whole variety of human experience, and what's true for me may not be true as true for others. But I can assure you that on the inside, I'm a pretty typical adopted person. The details of our stories vary, but the desire to reconnect with our original families is pretty universal. Dr. David Brzezinski, who's a noted adoption psychologist, says that 100% of adopted people search. And some of us actually go out and physically look for our relatives. But everyone is searching like this. You may not often hear what I have to tell you. We learn early on to be a little cautious when sharing our true feelings about adoption. It's part of the lifelong experience of being adopted. My story is about secrets and intrigue and events unfolding in places as far-flung as England, Italy, and back Bruley, Louisiana. It's filled with characters I couldn't have made up if I'd tried. A playwright said to me, a friend once said, you lucky girl, what material. <laughs> the book's title, Swimming Up the Sun, is a gift from my sister, Angela. She told me that our mother, Eve, lived in, and she and my mother, Eve, lived in this little seaside town on the east coast of England on the North Sea. 
And every morning, Eve would swim straight out toward the rising sun. And Eve called that swimming up the sun. Anyone here swum in the North Sea? It's bitterly cold, isn't it? This tells us something about Eve. (laughs) I thought this expression perfectly summed up the odyssey of adoption, search, and reunion. To swim up the sun, verb, intransitive, colloquial, British English. I actually think that Eve coined this expression. To swim toward the rising sun along a glimmering carpet of stars. To go forth adventurously, usually alone. To swim away from shore toward the unknown. By way of introduction, I think I'll read a short passage from the book. Chapter 1. In 1978, I flew eastward into the velvet darkness to England. In my handbag was an appointment letter to meet the man who would grant me a birth certificate. My adoption search had been an on-again, off-again affair, reflecting my ambivalence as well as the obstacle of distance. But a month after I'd read about the change in British adoption law, The letter in the official brown envelope had arrived at my home in Washington, D.C., confirming my request for a counseling appointment. I possessed a copy of my adoption order, but I'd never seen my birth certificate. Now, at the age of 21, I would be allowed to. The flight attendant passed by with a tray of miniature cordials, and as we sped through the night in a slim metal tube, I toasted my reflection in the window. I had always wanted to know my birth parents. I'd felt them calling through the years of childhood. Not because I'd been particularly unhappy. My childhood wasn't perfect, but there had been love, a brother and sister, good schools, travel, books, and the pantomime at Christmas. Wanting to find my birth parents had less to do with my childhood and more to do with yearning to learn the shapes of their faces, the gestures of their hands, and the geography of their hearts. Illuminated in a pool of light amid the dark cabin, I reread the letter with shaking hands, but I never entertained any possibility but the search. I had no doubts. From the time I could remember my own name, before I could possibly reason out the implications The knowledge that I would one day search for and find my parents had been a constant companion. In the artificial dawn of the immigration hall, a man in a navy blue uniform stamped my American passport and murmured a minimal welcome. I waited with the other sleep-deprived travelers for the luggage conveyor to disgorge our bags. I knew more about myself than many adoptees did that my mother had been a young British artist and my father the son of a Jewish businessman in the Midlands city of Nottingham. I'd been told they couldn't marry because of religion, that his parents would never have accepted a non-Jewish girl. I knew her name was Eve. It appeared on the adoption order. 
at my mother's request, her name and those of all her family members are changed in the book. A young Indian woman in a golden sari nuzzled her strapping Nordic husband as we waited for our luggage. How times had changed. Growing up in England, knowing I was half Jewish, I had sensed that being Jewish carried a scent of foreignness, that I was from a different race as well as religion. It was a scent some people begrudgingly admired, but others resented. I heard a lot about the war as a child, about Hitler and the Nazis. I recall when Life magazine ran a commemorative photo essay on the concentration camps. When I asked Moo, my adoptive mother, about the Jews, she bought me a copy of the diary of Anne Frank and left me to work it out for myself. Since I'd never met any other Jews, I wondered if I could possibly be the last one left. Yet I knew in my bones that my real father was out there somewhere. Knowing nothing about Jewish religion or culture, I gleaned that being Jewish was both dangerous and special. I had brought only a small, soft-sided bag which carried all I needed with room to spare. It was a treat to buy a few new clothes when I came to England. They were like touchstones, a woolly from Marks and Sparks, something cheap and cheerful from Dotty Perkins, perhaps a silk scarf splurge in the West End. We'd immigrated to the States at the end of the 1960s, and I hadn't returned often. When I did travel here, I was nostalgic for the tastes and sights of the old days. This visit was to be more about the present, and who knew, perhaps the future. As my bus jogged through the snarl of London morning traffic, a chasm of expectation opened. Who would I find? What would they be like? Would they like me? It wasn't too late to cancel the appointment. It wasn't too late to halt this vehicle propelling me forward and backward. It wasn't too late to stop, go sightseeing instead, or prowl the markets. The summer rain spat sideways against the bus window, distorting the view. I would not cancel my appointment. I couldn't stand not knowing anymore. When the stop came, I grabbed my bag from the luggage shelf and disembarked. My search had begun. I was born, adopted, and grew up in England. That was the first of my lucky breaks. My adoptive family moved to the US when I was in high school. I always wanted to search. I decided when I was four years old. My, sister, my parents had adopted another little girl, my sister Chris. So when she came to our home, I realized she was adopted, and she came from out there in here. I did the arithmetic. I was adopted. I knew. My parents had told me. So I came from out there in here, which meant that my people were somewhere out there. And one day, I would go and find them. Resolved. I want to be clear. I grew up in a happy adoptive family. Not perfect. Please put up your hand if you're from a perfect family. 
Look around. When I was a teenager, my mother became ill, eventually alcoholic. And you don't have to be adopted to know how devastating family alcoholism is. And I was a real mother's girl. But searching was never about them. It was about me. We adopted people don't search because our adoption is somehow unsuccessful. We search because we exist. We're sentient beings. We're from somewhere and some people. Out there, we have grandparents and siblings and cousins and ancestors and family friends. And there's a big hole inside until we reconnect. It takes more than just reconnecting to fill that spiritual hole, but it sure helps. We search because we're human. I didn't start out courageous. I had a homing instinct. I had feelings, lots of them. Meeting your parents for the first time at age 28 is so frightening. Yet I was compelled. I looked up the word courage. It's from the Latin core, meaning heart. The state of mind that enables one to face danger with self-possession, confidence, and resolution. Resolution is a positive expression of will directed toward achievement of personal ends. I didn't have self-possession or confidence, but I did have resolution. And that must be all that's required for us to develop the courage we need to live our lives authentically. I didn't seek to be courageous. I did what I had to, and one day I looked to the right, and there stood courage at my elbow, like a quiet child who arrived on cat's feet. Perhaps you're propelled toward a destiny a vocation, a sexual orientation, some other deep desire. Be on the lookout for courage. She'll come. That's good timing. And that's a good thing. Because after searching comes reunion. The first part of my story is about search, and the second part is about reunion. You spend so much time looking for these people, then when you find them, you go, oh my God, what am I going to do with them? <laughs> How do I have relationships with these people? How do I blend them into my life? And how do I get everyone to settle down and get along? It took two trips to England to find my parents. I got another lucky break. Out of the blue, Moo, my adoptive mother, wrote to me. She was living back in England and went to visit a friend in Nottingham, where I was born and she was from. She wrote, 
By the way, your real father's business is still there. Minson's on Upper Parliament Street. Upper Parliament Street? She'd never mentioned this. <laughs> One little secret. As quickly as I could, I saved up the money for my second search trip, and I found both my original parents on that trip. What a great mother Moo was. She knew I was nervous. She knew I had to reunite. She knew me. We drove to Nottingham, and she slipped her arm through mine, and together we marched into Minson's on Upper Parliament Street. And I said, I'd like to see Philip Minson, please. And the young lady behind the counter said, I'm sorry he's not here. He's up at the factory. Would you like me to ring him for you? I was not expecting that. But Moo said, no, thank you, but would you be kind enough to give us his phone number? A few days later, I called him, and a few days after that, we met. What an extraordinary experience to meet your father for the first time. He didn't know I'd been named after him. My given name is Pippa, the diminutive of Philippa. He was very welcoming, had already told his wife, would tell his children about me, and told me all about our Jewish family. Philip helped me find a current address for my mother Eve, and the next week, she and I reunited in London in the coffee shop in Selfridges. Eve was married with three other daughters and had never told her husband. A common scenario. She didn't want to tell him, or her daughters, or her friends. But she was as curious about me as I was about her. So we began a clandestine relationship. As Moo would quote Sir Walter Scott, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. I played the chameleon trying to prove I was trustworthy and decent. Eve was frightened of losing the life she'd built herself. She had already been a single mother with my half-sister, Angela, when she met her husband and they married. Then they had two more daughters together. I bided my time. We had so much in common. She really was an artist, and I was a writer. And my sisters, whom I'd only heard about, were writers and painters and designers. I continued my relationship with Philip's family that had no need to keep secrets. It's easier for birth fathers. I took my husband over to meet them. A few years after Eve and I met, Eve told my sister Angela about me, in confidence. Angela had decided to move to the United States for a new life. I don't care if I don't know anyone over there. I'm going! A sort of resonance of resolution. To which Eve had replied, well, maybe you do know someone. 
Angela and I became fast but secret sisters. Years went by and still Eve didn't tell her husband. I even met another sister, Jules, in the wilds of the Louisiana Bayou where Angela was living. But there came a time when I no longer felt comfortable being someone else's secret. I'd had my son, and two years later, Angela had her daughter. And the contrast between how Eve treated us and our children was stark. I told Eve I could not go on having a secret relationship. It had been coming for a long time. I thanked her for my sister, for the hour we spent together in the Miss Selfridge coffee shop, for all the wonderful books and little gifts she'd sent me. But I wouldn't have let a friend treat me the way she was treating me. And I had to move on. Walking away from a relationship I wanted my whole life was the hardest thing I've ever done. Many times I wanted to send her a photo or a note, but when I checked my motives, I realized I was still trying to change her. And she wasn't going to change. It was a mystery how I could be bought, brought so far and still have to give up on my heart's desire. When my son Miles was five, I decided to take him to England for a visit. Other relatives and friends in Philip's family were eager to see us. They wanted to meet my son. Angela suggested I drop Eve a postcard, in a plain white envelope, of course. Invited a coffee at a museum. I did so, but without expectation. As I prepared for the trip, I realized that I'd finally accepted Eve. As I walked the perimeter of the empty ball field, I imagined meeting Eve in a park. There's Eve, I'd say to Miles. Run up to her, say hello, and run back as fast as you can. In my mind's eye, I watched my five-year-old sprint to his grandmother sitting on a park bench, and I thought, if it ever happens, fine. If it doesn't, we'll see so many wonderful people, we won't have time to grieve. I strolled past the tennis courts and the playground, the leaves rustling beneath my shoes, and felt at last a sense of peace. Forty-eight hours later, I got a phone call. At the very moment, or within 48 hours, of my truly accepting the unacceptable, I received my heart's desire. power of accepting the unacceptable. May you know it. I can't imagine walking this earth without knowing my people. I wouldn't be the person I, was, I am today. I've been very loved. So many people have helped me. My father, Roger, 
my funny husband who always knew what to say no matter how awkward the situation was. And no one could have grown up in a better family than mine. But it's not enough. Everyone wants to know where they come from, who they're like, if they share talents and dreams. After we were able to have more openness, I won't tell you exactly what happened. You might want to read it. We had three wonderful years before Eve succumbed to breast cancer. She was among a tiny percentage of birth mothers, maybe one or two percent, maybe, who do not want adoption records opened. She didn't want to be found. She reunited reluctantly. But I want to tell you something she said to me five days before she died. It was the frankest conversation we've ever had over the phone. We talked about faith and death and fear, and she said two things very clearly. She said, giving you up for adoption was the hardest thing I ever did in my whole life. And she said, I never forgot you. I'm so happy you found me. Courage and acceptance, our gifts to each other.